It's hard to remember now just how often we were hearing about them, how they were being blamed for the entire economic mess collapsing all around us. And I think it's hard to remember just what a big deal they were because we never quite understood, not then, not now, what they are. The Treasury launched the TARP last fall to help rid the nation's banks of toxic assets. But These toxic later, assets are the cancer in the balance sheet. The president opened up by talking about the importance of dealing with toxic assets. Banks aren't the only institutions affected by these toxic assets. Toxic assets. Toxic assets. Toxic uh, assets. Our Planet Money team has been covering the financial crisis for two years, and they felt like one way to understand what is happening in our economy right now, today, was to become intimately acquainted with the source of its demise, the toxic asset. And so back in January, reporters David Kestenbaum and Hannah Joffrey-Walt convinced three other colleagues that they should purchase one purchase one for themselves, pitching together $1,000. All right, so how All much right, do we owe you? All right, you guys each owe me $202. All right. No pay change? Up. Even? 202 202 There's no change. That's right. Okay. Buy one of the things that nearly brought down the global financial system, that blew up receipt? major Wall Street banks, <laughs> that plunged the world into an economic collapse from which it is still struggling to recover. They wanted to buy one of those. Caitlin, you're dragging over there. I'm writing a check. I have to be precise. <laughs> I'm putting toxic asset as the memo on my check. (laughs) (laughs) Today we're going to be hearing the surprisingly riveting tale of a single toxic asset. The Planet Money team has rolled out installments of the story one at a time over the course of the last year on the Planet Money podcast and on some of the NPR news shows, serialized like a, a Dickens novel, published one chapter at a time. But today, for the first time, we bring you the whole story. Great Expectations, Little Dorrit, Bleak House, the full novel beginning to end in one place for the first time so you can actually follow the entire tale. And um, to kick us off, I am uh, now joined in the studio by David and Clana. Hello. Hello. Hey, Ira. All right, so I brought it in. Here it is. This is what we bought. Wow. That's chapter one. Volume two. It's just a, it's just a it's just a pile of papers <laughs> written by a lot of lawyers. Yeah. So technically, this thing is called a mortgage-backed security. Basically, a bunch of Wall Street guys grabbed up thousands of mortgages from all over the country, threw them in a pile, and sold off pieces to investors. So big pension funds bought them, insurance funds bought them, banks bought them, and you guys bought them. Well, well, that part happened much later. We bought ours in January of this year. And by that point, things had degraded so much that they were so cheap, even a bunch of reporters could afford one. And your goal in buying this toxic asset, I thought of it as somebody who's a fan of these stories when I would hear them. You're like archaeologists in this project. You're like you're like forensic doctors trying to reconstruct how the housing market collapsed and the economy died and truly understand what happened by carefully picking apart the corpse of one financial instrument. And, and I remember at the beginning, your hope was that this one toxic asset would be like an encyclopedia of the entire financial crisis. Yeah, it has. This thing has everything. There are homeowners in foreclosure. There is crime. There are the unintended consequences of bailing out both huge corporations and individual homeowners. There are questions of morality. And there's a dog named Muffin. All right. Well, let's get to it. Our show in five acts. Act one, fire sale in Kansas City. Take it away. So we've got our $1,000. We've got the will. Now we just have to buy one. But it turns out it's not so easy to buy a toxic asset. You kind of need to know a guy. But David, you knew a guy. 
Witt Solberg. He used to work on Wall Street. Now he'd set up shop in Kansas City, his hometown. He was helping small community banks that got stuck with toxic assets. So I called him and I said, how can we buy one of these things? And Witt said, I can help you. Come on down. So we did. This is it? Yeah. Hey, Hannah. Yeah? I, I forgot my checkbook. <laughs> I got you. All right. So, David, you took me to Kansas City to what feels like an abandoned alley. There's, <laughs> there's no one around. It's like an unmarked brick building. I feel like we're buying drugs. Wait, this is really it? Just in one of these little buildings? Yeah, it used to be a barber shop, I think. So we go upstairs, and it looks more legit inside. There are maybe a dozen guys in a big open office, whiteboards with numbers and lists, and each desk has several computer monitors sort of floating on a sea of crap. Potato chip bags, Snapple bottles, toothpaste, chewing tobacco. Chewing tobacco that gets spit out into the Snapple bottle. <laughs> that, that would be Wit Wit Solberg. He's got a blonde buzz cut. He's very charming and completely all over the place. Wit is always telling you several things at once. Just getting him to sit down and say his name is tough. Okay, so we... W- What's your name? Okay, that's a good point. Uh, so, uh, my name's Wit. Okay, so a bit about what we're buying. A long time ago, before toxic assets were toxic, they were called, and you've heard this phrase, mortgage-backed securities. And what that means is that these are thousands of mortgages all bundled together. And every month, when people send in their mortgage payments, think of that money as going into one big pot. And then the money in the pot gets used to pay the investors, the owners of this thing. They each get a monthly payment. Of course, we all know what happened. People stopped paying their mortgages. And the amount of money coming in started to dwindle. So there was no way investors are going to get all their money back. At this point, the mortgage-backed security has officially become a toxic asset. And now lots of investors are trying to unload these things at steep discounts, which is a buying opportunity for us. We want to make some money on this. And we can if we pick the right one at the right price. Yeah, what do you have on the... M- okay, I think so we're sitting here in Witt's office about WFMBS. to start bidding on toxic assets that people are trying to dump. Witt's going to look at the toxic assets, analyze them, and help us choose what to buy. He's got three computer monitors on his desk. And brokers send him emails about what toxic assets are for sale today. Only they don't call them toxic assets, they call them bonds. Witt gets lots of emails from guys in New York. Bobby sends a lot of email, and uh, Cliff and... Dwayne and Adam and Cliff again and Chris and, you know. These are guys that you trust. They're guys that sell bonds. The emails have subject lines like, super senior steal. One says, cheaper. It takes us a long time to even find a bond Wit wants to make an offer on. But finally, he picks one he thinks looks good. And then he asks this guy, Rob, who kind of looks like he stuck his finger in a light socket, to go and analyze it with a computer model in the back room. Actually, what Witt specifically says is, hey, Rob, go back to the Bond cave and check this out. And back in the Bond cave, Rob is going to run a bunch of fancy software to try and answer one deceptively simple question. How much should we pay for this bond? Remember, the bond is a pile of mortgages. Imagine that pile. The value of the pile depends on the health of those mortgages. As people's houses get foreclosed on, repossessed, and sold for a loss, pop, one of the mortgages disappears. And the pile shrinks. Right now, whoever owns the bond that Rob is looking at is receiving monthly payments. But once that pile of mortgages shrinks enough, those payments will stop. This bond will die. So Rob's trying to figure out, if we spend $1,000 to own a piece of this bond now, 
Will those payments continue long enough for us to make our money back plus some? Rob comes back and says, yeah, this one could be okay. And then Witt says something that blows me away. He says we should bid half a cent on the bond, as in one half of one penny on the dollar, meaning at some point, probably the height of the bubble, say this was worth a full dollar, now we're going to offer to buy it for half a cent, less than 1% of what someone originally bought it for. So Witt calls Cliff, one of those brokers who sent him the emails, and he says, hey man, half a cent on the bond. That's the way these guys talk when they're bidding on something. Two cents, mid-teens, 20s. So Cliff says, okay, let me check with whoever is selling it. We hang up, wait and wait. Finally, Cliff calls back. Hey, Cliff. Hey. What's happening? Uh, they're singing high teens on that. <laughs> that's that's bull****. That's ridiculous. Wait, so what, what happened to... Somebody oh. bought it for high teens? That's what they're telling the trader. And you bid half a cent. Yeah. So there's real disagreement about, about what these things are worth. There's huge disagreement. I mean, honestly, this is not uncommon. Hanna, we, we got outbid by someone offering 30 times more than we did. You'd think these toxic assets are plentiful and they're cheap. It should be easy to pick one up. But it's not easy. It takes a really long time because no one really knows what they're worth. Remember TARP, the government program, the $700 billion toxic asset relief program? The government's original plan was to use that money to buy up toxic assets, just vacuum up the whole problem. But it changed its mind. One reason? It was too hard to figure out what price to buy them for. Turns out, it's still a problem today. We're basically buying garbage, and it ends up taking us two full days. So why don't we run the 051 MV8? Okay, so the 1030 primes, no. Okay, so, it's now day two of yeah, toxic asset the, shopping. Late in the day, yeah, Witt MV8, says, call, I think I found it. This one looks good. Yeah, and it is a beautiful, yeah, totally MV8, toxic asset, which shows it to us on the computer you. screen. It contains mortgages on 2,000 homes. Witt scrolls the through them. There's a house there's in Arizona, there's California. Ooh, there's a big one. Someone paid more than $2 million for that place. Now, this house is located in uh, Florida, and it's a planned uh, urban development in Sarasota. All right? Pretty nice Sarasota place, right? You can tell a zip code. Yeah, there's a zip code. He owned... 34240. Yeah, golf course community, maybe a cul-de-sac, something like that. There's another guy in Sarasota. There's another guy in Sarasota. So you can start to get a feel that there was a guy in Sarasota who had a billboard who gave big loans, and those big loans went into this pool. This toxic asset, it originally cost $75,000. We get it for $1,000. Witt thinks that's a good price. And it says right there on the computer screen that there could be enough monthly payments left in it for us to double our money. Witt, how you doing? Good. Witt calls a friend at a local bank to make it official. All right, so that's all square-cornered. Um, okay. Proud owner of a bouncing little uh, private label mortgage-backed security. We prefer toxic asset. Maturity value purchased for the cheap, cheap value of $1,012.09. So if anybody has any questions, holler back at me. Later. Bye. All right, see you. Bye. All right, there it is. There you go. We will print screen on the settlement ticket. You can take it home with you. Thank you. Are you going to affirm? Can I click affirm? You can click affirm. 
Here we go. At some point, I realized I was the only one clapping, so I stopped. But I am feeling good about our investment. I figured everyone's afraid of these things. Only a handful of people are analyzing them and looking for bargains. We got it for 99% off. We are definitely going to make money. I felt confident. We all did. Act two. An old man chooses between logic and morals. Logic wins. On January 22nd, David and Hannah took their toxic asset back to the New York office, introduced it around to their colleagues, cleared a place on the corner windowsill for the stack of paperwork, and then stared at it, flipped through it, and considered some questions that in the end took them eight months to answer. What did they just buy? Who did they buy it from? Whose mortgages were actually in it? It was time to begin their archaeological investigation of their own toxic asset. Somewhere inside there, there were real people, real homeowners with real houses, but the stack of 300 pages did not identify who those real people were. It's actually kind of fun having a toxic asset. David set up a live toxic asset webcam so he could stare at it all the time, just gaze at the stack of paper. I thought other people might want to see it too. Sometimes I'd sit things on it, like flowers or a bottle of Tylenol. We go to a toxic asset investor conference. We start reading obscure trade publications. And the toxic asset starts to feel like a pet. We ask our listeners what we should call it, and it gets a name, Toxie and it gets a gender, we all start referring to it as she for some reason. Which always seemed completely unfair to me, since the one thing we can be almost 100% sure of is that this thing was created by men. But whatever. Yes, it's nice that people start to connect with her slash it. One listener wrote a song for Toxie. Did she find you on Wall Street and follow you home? Was she left at your door in a basket alone? She's Toxie, the toxic asset. We love every complicated facet. We spend a lot of time staring at this spreadsheet that came with Toxie. It lists all the mortgages, 2,000 of them, and financial data about the loans. But it doesn't give us what we need, addresses and names. It just has zip codes. It's sort of like this map that you can't quite read. So in the spring, we call an investigative reporter to help us find some of the people in the spreadsheet. Michael Braga with the Sarasota Herald Tribune in Florida. Sarasota, the very city that popped up over and over again when Witt showed us the loans in Toxie on his computer screen. So Michael went through public records databases. It took him about a day. And he came up with nine names. Nine precious names of Sarasotans with homes in Toxie. We printed out the list and stared at it. And then... We stared at the phone. Okay, so the first person on the list. What are we going to say to them? You're part of our toxic asset. Can we come swim in your pool? (laughs) Uh, Yeah. All right, let's call. We got wrong numbers. We left a lot of voicemails for people who didn't call us back. We called this one dentist who didn't call us back, and we left a voicemail for this one very nice-sounding couple. Hi, you've reached Sylvia and Joyce. We can't get to the phone right now, but leave a message and we'll get back to you. Thank you. Hi, George and Sylvia. This is David Kestenbaum. I'm a reporter with National Public Radio. I'm calling to um, 
<clears throat> I'm calling to see if you. You sound nervous. Purchased yeah. the house. Well, I was. Th- there's a lot to explain, right? In a voicemail, you have to say, "Oh, I'm a reporter for NPR, which you may not have heard of." And we bought a toxic asset, which, by the way, is a complicated bond, which has mortgages in it, and one of them is yours. And we want to talk to you, and you know, <laughs> yeah. You made me leave the next voicemail. What's so awkward about this is. This is probably the first time someone who invested in a toxic asset, who actually owned a homeowner's mortgage as part of one of these massive bonds, actually tried to get in touch with the homeowners. And think about what that means. The genius of these mortgage-backed securities was that they connected people with money to people who wanted to borrow. This happened to the tune of $3 trillion, hundreds of thousands of investors, millions of home buyers, but the two sides never met until now. Eventually, we found a homeowner, Richard Koenig. And this was very exciting. Half the homeowners in our toxic asset had stopped paying their mortgages. Half. And Richard Koenig was one of them. He was not paying us. When we got him on the phone, he said, sure, come on down. So we flew to Sarasota to meet him and drove to his house. It says, 1792. The there he is. Hi. Richard, nice to meet you. He's getting his mail. What if there's a statement from the bank in there? Richard Koenig is 81 years old, lives in Sarasota, owes us money, and is nothing like we expected. First of all, he doesn't look like a deadbeat. I don't have horns. <laughs> I don't have much hair. <laughs> Still have a good sense of humor. Andy has a dog named Muffin. My baby. I love my baby. I know some dog lovers. I have never met somebody as in love with their dog as Richard is with Muffin. So Richard Koenig took us to the actual house that is in our toxic asset, the one that we've been looking at on this spreadsheet. We got to see it. Oh, it's nice. Very nice. Oh, everything. You cannot believe what was done to this place. Maybe when you think about toxic assets, you picture rundown homes, falling apart, overgrown lawns. Uh Uh-uh. This place is really lovely. It's a condo on a little pond in a tidy housing development. It's Richard's second home. He planned to move out of his bigger place with his wife and into the condo. That would be more manageable as he grows older. So in 2005, Richard took out a $300,000 mortgage. And then the housing market fell apart. And Richard Vandy owed more on this house than it's worth. So he decided to stay in the house he already lives in and walk away from the condo by the pond. After Richard showed us his real live house, we showed him what it looked like from our end. There he is, just this little line in our spreadsheet that reads CCC369999. And that nine stands for 90 days delinquent or more. So a bunch of nines in a row means he hasn't been paying his mortgage for a long time. So we show him all the toxic acid paperwork, all 300 pages. This is what it looks like. This is where your mortgage ended up. Unbelievable, isn't it? My God. My eyes couldn't accommodate it. I'm not going to live long enough to go through that pile of <laughs> pile of poop. <laughs> Did you have a picture of us? Of who, Yeah, like when you were writing your checks, who you were sending them to. Oh, you mean at the bank? No. <laughs> no, to me, banks, uh, unless I know the individual, uh, a bank is a blank face. It's a non-living creature. <laughs> of course, it wasn't a bank or a non-living creature. You were writing checks to us. Yeah. 
but not you personally. It'll be, and now, had you been the recipients on a personal basis after having met you, I'd write you the check. <laughs> How's that? And do I feel sorry for the investors? Sure, I do. I mean, it, you know, of course, I, you know, I'm, I'm a sensitive person. You know, <laughs> I really am. I love my wife. I love my dog. I love my children and my grandkids. Yeah, I feel badly. You know, we don't hold it against you. Good. <laughs> Please don't. And really, I don't. Richard is underwater on the house. He owes more than it's worth. And he has a home, so he can walk away from this second house. It's going to kill his perfect credit rating, but he doesn't really need good credit anymore. He's 81 years old. He's probably never going to need to borrow money again. So it makes sense for him to just walk away. Well, maybe logically it makes sense, but he did make a commitment. He gave his word. That's not nothing. That's what it means to be an adult. Someone gives you money, you pay it back. And if the value of his house kept going up, he probably would have continued to pay it back. That would have been the logical thing to do, but the logic changed. So his morals changed, too. Was, was that a hard emotional decision to walk away from the, that house? Well, it, yeah, it went against everything that, uh, that I was <laughs> ever taught to believe. You know, you just don't turn your back and say goodbye, good luck. So from that perspective, yes, it did bother me. But... If I have to uh, compromise the way I live, I'm really not going to do that. Not at almost 82 years old. I, had, I really had no choice. Well, you did have a choice. You could have kept paying it. I could have kept paying for it? Not really. You know, at my age, to have payments like that, and a large income, no longer a large income, it... it you know, it didn't, didn't make any sense at all. There are lots of Richards these days. In fact, the moral compass of the entire country is shifting. So much so that there is a name for what Richard is doing. Walking away from your home like this, it's called a strategic default. I'm unaware of, it ha- of strategic defaults in the residential sector happening on this scale in, in American history. This is Mary Kinsley, a lawyer in Arizona. Mary talked to our Planet Money colleague and co-toxic asset investor, Alex Bloomberg. Mary's job is to answer phones at a helpline for people with real estate questions. And she says just two years ago, people would call up in tears facing foreclosure, agonizing about how to save their homes. Then just one year later, everything changed. Now it's almost a reverse. I'm speaking to people, for the most part, who who want to know, how can I make the bank foreclose on this faster? And I talk to quite a few people who say, hmm, perfect credit score versus $80,000 in my pocket and not upside down on this house anymore. It's really not. It's, it's, a, it's a business decision rather than emotional decisions. And these are people who could continue to pay their mortgage. Yes. It, it's, it's not illegal to breach a contract. And that's essentially what it is. It's a breach of contract. And sort of the dirty little secret of, the, of real estate is Businesses do it all the time. Strategic defaults are going to happen anytime you have plunging home values. But they were particularly bad because of something else that was going on. Another feature of the housing crisis that also shows up in our toxic asset. Speculation. This house is in your toxic asset. This is one of ours. Yeah, this is one of yours. That's your house. 
This is Michael Braga, the investigative nice. reporter who's been yeah, helping us. Nice. This house we're looking nice. at was bought in 2005 at the height of the bubble. But it seems like no one ever moved oh, yeah, in. And unlike Richard's condo, it looks but, like um, no one ever intended like to. No Today there are dead just palm trees in the front yard down. with the tops cut off, just um, eight feet of trunk sticking out of the ground. Uh, but the house has promise. Oh, wow, they have an ocean view. Yeah, it's, uh, that's Sarasota Bay. And... Uh, pool is a little green, which means that they haven't put chlorine in it, and all the blinds are down. Uh, I can peek inside. Inside, there's some nice white couches and a bar that looks into the kitchen. And uh, Oh, and it looks like a Brady Bunch staircase that leads up to the second floor. This house was bought not as a dream home, not even as a second home. It was bought in 2005 by a man named Derek Taka. Braga tells us Taka is a local lawyer a purple belt jujitsu martial artist, and a real estate speculator. Derek Taka ultimately defaulted on five loans, totaling $3.6 million, including the $991,000 loan that is in your toxic asset. Taka did not return our phone calls, but his story is not unusual. Of the nine people we tracked down in Florida, three were investors like Taka. They were speculators. And it turns out three out of nine was typical all over the country. According to one estimate, a third of homes bought during the bubble were investments. Waitresses, cab drivers, executives all bought homes not to live in, but to make them money. In Florida, you can see it all over. Homes built, drywall hung, air conditioners installed, and no one ever moved in. They were empty in 2005, and they're still empty now. So if one-third were speculators, that still leaves two-thirds. Two-thirds of the people in our toxic asset probably bought their homes to live in. Some are still making their payments. Some are going through defaults. Not strategic defaults. They don't have a choice. Act three. Flipper. Uh, Not the dolphin. When David and Hannah went to Florida to find some of the homeowners in their toxic asset, they were not expecting speculators or an 81-year-old with a new set of morals. And they certainly didn't expect to walk into a crime scene which is what happened next. I should just say that uh, if you've heard a little bit about mortgage fraud in this crisis, this next story will finally explain exactly what mortgage fraud means. Here's David McConnell. So I'm sitting at my desk right around the time of our trip to Florida, looking through some court documents, you know, just doing some reporting for our trip. And there's this affidavit filed by an FBI agent listing a handful of mortgages that are apparently fraudulent. There's 202 Island Circle, 1628 Bay Winds Lane. I'm sort of half paying attention. And then I see this one address. It's George and Sylvia Bobka. Remember them? Hi, you reached Sylvia and George. We can't get to the phone right now, but leave a message and we'll get back to you. Thank you. I remember you sent me a heavily exclamation pointed text when that happened, David. It was so surprising. I mean, there are thousands and thousands of homes in the county. A handful end up listed in this affidavit. And one of them is in our toxie. We got the court documents from Michael Braga at the Sarasota Herald Tribune. And it turns out our taxi is linked to what could be a $100 million mortgage fraud scheme they've been reporting on. Michael told us the whole thing was masterminded by one guy, a guy the folks at the Herald Tribune called the king of the flip. He just may be the biggest uh, case of mortgage fraud in U.S. history. And uh, his name is, is Craig Adams. And he engineered more than 80 deals, which he has told the FBI about, that were in some way fraudulent. 
those 80 deals uh, properties were worth about $200 million. So, Hannah, before when I'd heard about mortgage fraud, I always thought of some couple fudging something on their mortgage application. But this is much, much larger. No, in Florida, mortgage fraud appears to have been pretty widespread and organized. The reporters at the Sarasota Herald Tribune have been looking into this one circle led by Craig Adams, the king of the flip. And it was a kind of fraud scheme based on flipping houses back and forth for higher and higher prices. So people taking out larger and larger loans from the bank and dividing that money up amongst themselves, among the people in the circle. We're going to look at how this apparently worked by following one house. This is a house on Cove Terrace in Sarasota, Florida. This one is not in our toxic asset, but George and Sylvia Bobka's house is connected to the same scheme, and their house is right down the street. So the story of what happened at Cove Terrace begins with a man who may be the very last person to have truly loved this house, the last person to own it before it was sold into the circle of flippers. Fred Bloom is my name. Fred Bloom? Fred Bloom. Isn't Dr. Bloom a perfect name for an allergist? Are you an allergist? I am. Dr. Bloom, the allergist, raised his two daughters in this house. And it's a really nice place. It's on a quiet street, on a cul-de-sac. It's got four bedrooms, red tile roof. It's painted sort of like, you know, that Florida salmon-y kind of color? Um, And it has a pool and a boat dock. We had a little boat, and my kids enjoyed water skiing and fishing and, you know, family activities. At the time I owned it, it was a a two-story family room with windows up above. And you could sit there and watch lightning, and you could watch the sky. Just a warm, warm feeling room with the big windows and light. So they were good years. You can hear me sort of walling up now. Oh. That's right to have your kids grow up, huh? Exactly. Yeah. It, was, it was a good time in our lives. And there, appropriately, are the cicadas or whatever they are, right as we get to the drama. The drama began the moment Dr. Bloom decided to sell this house that he had loved. Um, it occurred after my wife and I got divorced, and she moved out of town, and I stayed in the house uh, trying to sell it because she had half equity in the house. And it didn't sell, and it didn't sell, and it didn't sell. My wife wanted to get another realtor, and we did. And she had the house for, I think, a three-month contract. And then towards the end of her contract, she became very intense about trying to lower the price so we could sell it. What do you think about that? I wasn't happy about lowering the price, uh, but... My former wife was saying, I want my money, and the realtor was saying, let's get it sold. And I wasn't happy about that. I was not happy about lowering the price. And then we had an offer from Craig Adams. This is the realtor, Candy Swick. Now, we should just point out here that this was the year 2000. Craig Adams was not known at this time as the king of the flip or as the alleged ringleader of the largest mortgage fraud scheme in Florida history. People called him something else. They called him real estate genius. Craig's offer was was very good. It was right on the mark. And when he made the offer, it was a fair price. It was like, this is good. Take it and run. It's been enough time. This is a very good offer. And I resisted as long as I could and then decided the fight is is over. So I, I caved in. Dr. Bloom sold the house for $600,000, much less than he wanted for it. And then a few weeks later, he's at the grocery store buying groceries, and he runs into his former Cove Terrace neighbors, and he asks them, hey, how you doing? How are the new people on the block? And they told me that my house had sold again, and he mentioned the price of seven twenty-five, and I was really upset. And I said, that's $125,000 more than I got for it. That was only a matter of a couple of weeks. 
Oh, it was weeks? It was just a matter of a couple of weeks. Yeah. I'm not happy. Dr. Bloom had no idea what was going on, and he didn't for 10 years until he gets a phone call from one of the reporters at the Sarasota Herald-Tribune. So the Sarasota Herald-Tribune was looking into what seemed like a lot of illegal flipping around Florida. And Craig Adams' name came up several times, including on the Cove Terrace house. So one of the reporters, Matthew Doig, calls up Dr. Bloom and he says, do you remember the details of selling that house? Thinking Bloom probably won't remember anything. It's been 10 years. But Bloom remembered every detail of the sale. He had held on to this resentment and to this mystery for 10 years. Why did he try to sell for over a year, try to sell his house for $700,000 and eventually have to sell it for 600000 And then weeks later, this guy, Craig Adams, turns around and sells it for 725000 Here's that reporter, Matthew Doig. After Dr. Bloom is out of the picture, it, that house is completely controlled by Craig Adams. And every time it is sold, Adams is, is representing both the buyer and the seller. So he's completely controlling the process. And that house sold many, many times. And in fact, to Dr. Bloom, it looked like he sold the house to Craig Adams. But Craig Adams actually got his friend Steve Wexler to sign for it. So Steve Wexler buys it from Dr. Bloom, and then Steve Wexler sells it to John Keyworth for $725,000, who sells it to Craig Adams, who actually buys it at one point for $1.1 million, who sells it to Kelly West for almost $1.5 million, who sells it again to Charles Scott Abel for close to $2 million. So it sells five times in four years and basically triples in price. Yeah, and Dr. Bloom the whole time is really perplexed about what is happening. He still lives in the neighborhood, and the house keeps going up in price, but it doesn't look better. It kind of looks worse. Occasionally, I would drive by the house and drive through the neighborhood, and at various times, the yard was really in disrepair. When it was in disrepair, did it look like no one was living here? Yes, yes, it looked like it was vacant. So the way the Tribune lays this out, Keyworth, Wexler, all these guys were connected to Adams. They were part of his circle. The idea here is that with each sale, the new owner would take out a mortgage loan and use that to pay the previous owner for the house. The previous owner has now made money because he sold it for more than he bought it for. And that profit, allegedly, gets split among the players. So I borrow $600,000 from the bank to buy the house. And then a year later, I sell it to my buddy Keyworth for $800,000. Keyworth gets a loan from the bank, $800,000. And since we're working together, we now have just made $200,000 to split between us. That's the allegation anyway. It's still working its way through the legal system. When the housing bubble popped in 2007, the Cove Terrace house was owned by yet another associate of Craig Adams's, And he defaults on more than $2 million in loans. The bank forecloses on the house. And this is when Candy Swick, Dr. Bloom's real estate agent, finally figures out something funny has been going on. She has another client interested in the Cove Terrace house. And for the second time, 10 years later, she pulls up the listing. Oh, my gosh. What did it look like? It looked like it had been sold every couple years. And I see... Craig Adams, listed and sold. 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 And it's like, this is not right. Not right. And isn't it also stupid? This is the thing that always confused me about this kind of fraud. Because at the end of the day, all you've done is inflate the value of a house and take out larger and larger loans. And at the end, you've just got this bigger loan than you started with. you still got to repay that. What the hell were the people in this circle thinking? (laughs) Well, in some ways... It could be the perfect crime. The last guy defaults on the house, as he did with Craig Adams' house, and that guy's credit is ruined. But he and everyone else gets to keep the money from the sales. And it's a lot of money. 
Though Guy Sakala, publisher of Inside Mortgage Finance, says he doesn't think these guys were that methodical. There wasn't a great exit strategy. You know, in hindsight, these weren't geniuses figuring out these um, plans because they had a lot of pitfalls. Most of them saw quick money right away and weren't figuring out how it was going to play out over time. Craig Adams, the king of the flip, is now an FBI informant helping the feds investigate the circle, according to the guys at the Herald Tribune. The closing agent who did a lot of the paperwork for Craig Adams' deals on this has been arrested. Adams did not return our calls. She's a complex lady. She's sketchy, she's shaded. And triple A ready, she ain't. So, David, I think we can say that our dream that Taxi would be an encyclopedia of the financial crisis, that part's working out. Yeah, she's got a retired guy walking away from his home, speculators, possibly fraud, and of course, some investors who bought the toxic asset without really knowing what the hell they were doing. Us. It's Toxy, the toxic asset. Has it been chewing the ass yet? Collateral lies spell certain demise and doom for anyone who has it. Coming up, why carpenters in New Jersey hate Toxy. That's in a minute. From Chicago Public Radio and Public Radio International. When our program continues. This is American Life from Ira Glass. Each week on our show, of course, we choose a theme, bring you different kinds of stories on that theme. Today's show, Toxie. We try to understand the entire economic crisis through the story of a single toxic asset. Reporters on our story today are Planet Money's David Kestenbaum and Hannah Jaffe Walt. We have arrived at Act 4 of our show, Act 4, Villains and How to Sue Them. January, February, these were happy months for Toxie, the toxic asset. Our team bought it in January for 1000 February, just like they hoped, the first payment came in, checked for $141. But then uh, things started to take a turn. March's check was a lot less, $44.81. Toxy was getting sick quickly. So David McConnell called Witt Solberg in Kansas City, the guy who helped them buy Toxy in the first place. We have a lot of questions for you. Yeah, I, 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 uh, I imagine you do. Questions with no clear answer. Meanwhile, other things were happening. Hannah got an email. Looked urgent. Subject, do you know your toxic asset is being sued? Immediate thought, what the hell does that mean? In a moment of confusion, I thought, wait, are we being sued? In the end, it turns out the lawsuit is against the creators of our toxic asset. And the man doing the suing is as close as we could ever get to Toxie's previous owner. When we bought Toxie in Kansas City, we had no idea who we were buying her from. We pictured a bank, we pictured a Wall Street guy with a nice car driving down the West Side Highway, and we kept searching for him. We called out for him on national radio, on television. If you own this bond, please get in touch with us. We didn't hear anything. We put an ad in what we imagined was his favorite publication, a newsletter called Asset Backed Alert. Nothing. But this lawsuit, this lawsuit got us someone close, a toxic asset investor who bought a close sibling of Toxie. His name is George Laufenberg. And meeting him, we realized maybe we were looking in the wrong circles. I'm actually a carpenter out of Local 623, uh, Atlantic City, and I've been a member of the Carpenters Union since 1972, which puts me at about 38 years. George is the administrative manager of the New Jersey Carpenters Funds. He manages their pension fund, their health benefits, and their vacation fund. He bought his taxi as an investment for their vacation fund. And that is the last you're going to hear from George, because George, in his effort to sue Toxie's creators, has hired a lawyer who prefers to speak for him. 
George owns what you could call Taxi's younger sister. So Taxi's real name is HVMLT 2005. That stands for Harborview Mortgage Loan Trust 2005 because all the mortgages in ours were from 2005. The Carpenters have HVMLT 2006. So they bought the 2006 model with 2006 mortgages. Same people put her together just a year later. Though, as George's lawyer is quick to point out, George bought his Taxi way back when no one knew she was toxic. He did not, like us, buy his as an experiment. He didn't go to Kansas City to rifle through the bargain basement. He bought what he thought was a pristine investment-grade bond and paid full price. The Carpenters spent $100,000, and that investment is now worth just 5000 So George, the Carpenter, is furious, and he's trying to do something we've been trying to do, figure out what's going on inside a single toxic asset. The only difference is we have Google and a phone. The Carpenters have a team of fancy Manhattan lawyers, including Joel Laitman. It's a complex chain of people involved. So is it hard sometimes to figure out who to sue? Um, you just have to read the offering documents very carefully. Just like 5,000 pages, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, just read them and read them again. We're sitting in this conference room, and in front of Joel Laitman, there is a huge stack of papers, almost up to my collarbone, with colored tabs, big, blocked-out, highlighted sections, basically reconstructing in more detail than what we have done, who made this monster? Who is at fault? He's asking the question most of us would love to know an answer to, Who is to blame for these things? Though, as a lawyer, he's asking that with a definite goal in mind. Who can he sue? Well, let's run through the possible suspects. Toxie's life and the life of her sibling that the Carpenters bought started with the huge subprime mortgage lender Countrywide. Countrywide gave out all the loans in Toxie, all those loans that are going bad. But Countrywide collapsed. They're not around anymore. Okay, so how about the rating agencies? They rated this stuff as very good investments. Maybe you can sue them. The lawyers tried that. The judge dismissed it. Like most cases against rating agencies, the rating agencies argue we're just like movie critics or restaurant reviewers. We're expressing an opinion protected by the First Amendment. So that leaves the sellers of the toxic asset. In this case, the Royal Bank of Scotland, RBS. They bought mortgages from Countrywide, packaged them into complex securities, and they were the guys who sold them as super safe investments to people like George the Carpenter and his pension fund. The problem with that is you can't just say, look, RBS sold me this thing that's now worthless. RBS could always argue, we didn't know it was going to be worthless. No, you have to show, you have to prove they misled you in some way. And so Joel, the carpenter's lawyer, went on a quest for what is the smoking gun of securities lawyerdom, a misstatement. A misstatement. Not a bunch of secret emails conspiring against the carpenters, not a clandestine recording of an RBS banker plot. No, a tiny technical phrase, maybe a couple buried deep in documents that came with the toxic asset that the lawyers can prove would mislead an investor. To find a misstatement or omission, you have to read the whole thing many times. But Where is that? Do you, do you actually have that tab? Yeah, sure. So here we're on page 81. It starts at 80. This is mortgage loan origination is the section countrywide. Lines All right of here. this. And you're underlining over here. <laughs> yeah, very exciting. It actually was exciting. Page 81 of the offering document put out by RBS when they sold the toxic asset. Leitman found what he thinks is his misstatement. Three lines stating that the underlying collateral and the mortgage-backed securities had underwriting guidelines that required a credit check. 
a credit check that does not seem to have been performed on all of these loans. Ladies and gentlemen, we have a case. There are offices of lawyers throughout the country searching for their page 81 right now because it's not just carpenters in New Jersey who want their money back. PIMCO, which manages the world's largest mutual fund, does too. So do Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, those huge government-sponsored mortgage lenders that ended up with toxic assets, and the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. The Fed, by the way, owns another of Toxie's close siblings. Investors all over the globe want their money back, potentially $200 billion they believe they're owed, because somewhere in some document, someone misrepresented what they were selling. These investors lost a lot of money, and they want someone to pay. If you win, who pays you? It'll be the defendants who are in the case. So we're talking about... RBS. RBS. And that may sound satisfying. RBS sold these guys a bum investment. Who cares if it's a tiny misstatement in thousands of pages that probably no one ever read? It's like Al Capone getting caught on tax evasion. Justice is still being served. The little guy carpenters are getting justice from the big, rich international bank. But... But there's a but. Guess who owns RBS? The British taxpayers. RBS, like other big banks, failed. RBS failed so spectacularly that the British government ended up taking over the bank, investing billions of dollars of taxpayer money to keep RBS afloat. Which means if this suit is successful, it won't be fat cat RBS bankers paying back the carpenters. It'll be regular British taxpayers. What what pub is this? The Marquis of Westminster, 50 Warwick Way, London, UK. (laughs) You're the manager? I'm the owner. Are you a British taxpayer? I am. And what do you know about um, the bailout of British banks? What do I know? I know that uh, the banks lost money and we paid, I think the Royal Bank of Scotland, 74% we bought them out, bought their equity. So, so you, in some senses, you own RBS? We do, yeah, the taxpayer does. You and the, the guys in your pub? Yeah. How did you feel about it? Um, yeah, I think it's outrageous because at the end of the day, these guys risk a hell of a lot. And then, and if that risk pays off, they get paid a hell of a lot of money. I think it's disgusting, personally. Did you feel like it was necessary, though? What, that, that, we, that we bailed them out? Mm-hmm. No, let them go under. That's what I say. Chris Hayes, the owner of the Marquis of Westminster Pub. And it's actually a lot worse than Chris thought. British taxpayers now have an 84% stake in the bank. I told him about the Carpenters and how they lost so much money, how they were suing RBS, which, as a British citizen, Chris, the pub owner, now partially owns. When I told him that, he got a little more thoughtful. When you buy something, I suppose you take the responsibility of... um of what the company's done, so I suppose it's inevitable, really, to a certain degree. We're buying into their mistakes, I suppose. If it's if it's a bunch of average men on the street trying to get their money back, I suppose I wouldn't mind so much. I mean, if, if American Express or BP or somebody were filing the suit, then, you know, I'd be a little bit more reticent in giving the money. But, you know, if it's a bunch of carpenters, then good luck to them. You don't mind if your money goes to them? No, I don't mind. I mean, it's far removed from me, isn't it? You know, if I was asked to actually physically put my hand in my pocket <laughs> and hand the money over, it'd be different, wouldn't it? <laughs> right. Well, that brings us to Act 5, Toxie in a Coma. 
I know. It's serious. After the initial scare in March, when her monthly check was only $44, Taxi looked like she was recovering. The next check we got in April was for almost double that, $72. But then, in May, a brutal wake-up call from Witt Solberg. Well, the the patient, uh, Toxy, didn't get a payment this month. In other words, so we're supposed to get a check every month? How much is our check for this month? Uh, It's for zero. Zero? Yeah, there wasn't a check. (laughs) Wait, wait, nothing? We're not getting anything. Hey, you know, I'm, I'm, it's, you're still alive, though. It, She's sort of in a coma. You know, a dazed state. A dazed state. Okay. Yeah. We have made back half of our money. How should we, how should we feel right now? Well, at least you got half. <laughs> <laughs> right? The glass is half full. <laughs> Seriously? The glass is half full? We got a check for zero this month. Yeah, that's no, the other half, uh, half of the glass. That's the other yeah. half of the glass. No, it's uh, that's right. This wasn't the way it was supposed to happen. Back in the Bond Cave, Rob had explained to us that we get checks for roughly the same amount each month, and then one day they'd stop. They're not supposed to go up and down, and they're definitely not supposed to be for zero dollars. So we spent $1,000. If Taxi stayed in a coma, we'd be out a lot of money. To try to sort out what was going on, we brought in Samir Noriega and Steve Marcus from NPM Capital. Samir used to trade Taxi's ancestors at J.P. Morgan. And he pulled up Taxi's paperwork and looked at it sort of the way a doctor looks at an x-ray and pointed. You, you don't, yeah, I'll show you real quick. So he finds a loan in Brentwood, California for $696,000, and he tells us something big happened to this Brentwood guy this last month. In this case, you're, you, here you have two hundred grand that were forgiven of principal. Oh, oh, so you can see there. Oh, that's, so that, they really just said, don't worry about that 200000 you don't have 200, to pay. 000. Yep, that was forgiven. This was re- deferred. They forgave $200,000? That's what it looks like. What are they doing? I mean, I feel for that person, but, you know, <laughs> that was money we were supposed to be getting some of. Yeah. In essence, because of their forgiving that homeowner, that principal balance, it's affecting Toxie. So their forgiving is at your expense. Loan modifications. This was a real surprise to me because usually you hear, number one, how loan modifications aren't happening enough, and number two, how they're good for everyone. If you modify a loan, you can keep a family in their home. That's good for them. And it's good for the lender who doesn't have to foreclose on the house and sell it for what could be an even bigger loss. But there is one group of people it is not good for, us. And this is where I'm afraid we have to dig into the toxic asset paperwork. We have to explain the line. So the way these mortgage-backed securities work is that us and all the other investors who collectively own these 2,000 mortgages, we are basically standing in line to get paid. Every month, money comes in from people's mortgage checks, but that money first gets used to pay the investors standing in front of the line, then the people behind them, then the people behind them. And we are standing way at the back of the line. And that's why our slice of this thing is toxic. That's why we got it so cheap. The people in the front paid more than us. 
So loan modifications, bad for us. This Brentwood, California guy, he got a smaller mortgage now, which means he's writing a smaller mortgage check each month, which means that pile of mortgages is just a little bit smaller with less money coming in. This month, just six mortgages in Toxie got modified, but that was enough so that the money ran out just before it got to us at the last place in line. This is one reason why it's been difficult to arrange loan workouts to help people who can no longer make their payments, because there's a whole bunch of people like us who lose money when you do. I ask Samir, do investors like us call up the bank and say, stop doing these modifications, you're killing me? You could do that. Would you do that if you owned this? I own some of them, so I do that. But they don't, they don't care. They might care, but there's a lot of pressure the other way. Some investors at the front of the line want the banks to do modifications because any money that comes in goes to them first. The government wants banks to do modifications and has programs to encourage it, and homeowners want them too. So when Samir is looking at Toxie's numbers on the screen, he's pretty pessimistic. In fact, there's only one way that things are going to turn around. If everyone won the lottery in this pool, however unlikely that is, um, and they all pay the mortgage entirely, you'll be getting close to 75 grand. Next month. Next month. Yes. The taxi would be alive and healthy again. Yes. It's still alive. As long as you have an outstanding principal balance, there's hope. But it's fading very quickly. September 19th, 2010. It was pretty clear where we were headed. I went through blame, anger, denial, and then we got the call. Well, uh, the day has come. Toxie has officially died. It's over. It, it is over. That means we're, there's no chance we're getting any more checks. It, she's, she's dead, Hannah. She's, she's not coming back. We bought Toxie for $1,000. And at the time of death, we had made back $449.06. In trying to find comfort in that moment, I console myself with this thought. With Toxie's demise, we are one step closer to the end of this financial crisis. Now we have an answer to that big question. What are toxic assets worth? The question that's vexed governments and big banks and the world's finance ministers. At least for our one toxic asset, we now know the answer. She was worth $449.06. Although Wit, who sees these things traded every day, billions of dollars worth, did not feel like this meant closure. We're in like the third inning, if, if you will, on the toxic asset business. There's still a lot more that's sitting in people's balance sheets, you know, waiting for the day that they're able to sell. They're not going away anytime soon. In other words, Toxie is survived by millions of investors and homeowners who are part of some other toxic asset story. We still don't know how those stories are going to end. The economy is more stable than it was, but housing is still a big, big unknown thing. I turned off the live video cam pointing at the stack of paper that was Toxie. And Hana, you scattered the remains. And by that, I mean you handed out the money we got back from Toxie to our colleagues at Planet Money. 80, 85, 86, 87, 88, 89. So this is it. This is what Toxie has come down to. Oh, no, wait here. And, uh, <laughs> she brings out the change. 
80 cents. Here you go. <laughs> this is so depressing. Wait, does that mean we're all only getting that much back? $89.80. We turned your $200 into $89. It's really depressing that this is all that's left of Taxi. That's it. So so I've been sitting here lurking. That's Planet Money uh, blogger Jacob Goldstein. He wasn't part of the staff when we bought Toxie. And he was sitting in the room watching us each get our $89.80. Um, so look, I have a proposition, basically. It's very safe. Sounds and it, familiar. It involves you giving me $89.80, each of you. You have it there sitting there in front of you. Adam, you already said it doesn't feel like a lot of money. <laughs> I want you to take that money right now, put it in my hand, because I have what for all of history has been the very definition of a sound investment. Gold. <laughs> Gold? One word. <laughs> We're going to buy whatever, a penny a penny-sized piece of gold. That will be our rock. That and you're going to bring in a gold? We're going to see the gold? We are going to have what you call a gold. <laughs> <laughs> On October 4th, Jacob and I went to the Diamond District in New York City with Toxie's remains in a mason jar, and we bought a shiny gold coin. It cost $419, twice as much as it would have cost three years ago, which means that, yes, it might be a bubble. But this time, if we lose money, at least we got in on the way up instead of the way down. Well, our program was produced today by Alex Bloomberg with Ben Calhoun, Jane Felter, Sarah Koenig, Jonathan Mendivar, Lisa Pollock, Robin Semyon, Alyssa Ship, and Nancy Updike. Senior producer for our show is Julie Snyder. Seth Lind is our production manager. Emily Condon is our office manager. Production up from Sean Wen. Special thanks today to Witt Salberg, Brent Marnell, and all the guys at Mission Peak Capital for helping David and Connor find and buy Toxie. Thanks to Andrew Gumby-Breton and James Gammon for the song Toxie, the Toxic Asset. Also thanks to Michael Braga, Caitlin Kenny, Ori Berliner, and Ellen Weiss. Stephen Neary, Connie Lee Chan, and Robin Arnaud did this amazing animated cartoon about Toxie. You can see that and get the Planet Money podcast for free at npr.org slash money. Our website, thisamericanlife.org, where you can get the new This American Life app for Android phones. This American Life is distributed by Public Radio International. WBEZ Management Oversight for our show by Tori Malatia. I have to tell you, I was shocked to find that he's thinking about replacing me with late-night TV host Craig Ferguson. Craig's offer was, was very good. It was right on the mark, and when he made the offer, it was a fair price. I'm Ira Glass. Back next week with more stories of This American Life. R.I. Public Radio International.